the three most common text messages that I send these days, and in no particular order, are the following. Does anybody actually intend to say ducking? What's up, broski? Remember, I'm from Chicago. It just makes sense there. And this ain't that hard. The latter one is, is specific when it comes down to a conversation where we're trying to talk about a very complicated point, but that has a solution that's not as complicated as you would like it to be or that you would think it needs to be. And I can guarantee you that 95% of the time, my text message says, this ain't that hard. We are talking about bike racing. In fact, crit racing isn't that hard. It is not like being a physicist with CERN working on the Haldron Collider. It's not like trying to run the world's largest economy. It's nothing like that. It is not easy to do, but it takes dedication, focus, attention to detail, working hard, and having the ability to learn from other people. It's that latter point. The point of being a teachable or coachable or mentorable person that is what separates the good athletes, those who are physically capable of performing an act, from the best athletes and the greatest athletes. Those men and women who have learned from mentors, who have gone with an open mind to the people that have come before them and said, show me how that wheel worked so that I do not have to reinvent it. Those are the ones that have a step up, a leg up in the battle of becoming a better version of themselves. I have had multiple mentors in my life. I have had many mentors in my bike racing life. The top three that I can think of right now that are most formative to me, the late, great Steve Tilford raced on the world's team for Greg LeMond and in the Tour de France, also happened to be in Kansas when I was first starting out as a bike racer in Kansas. Judge Schneider, there for me right at the beginning of my life as a bike racer and basically throughout, raced for Jittery Joes. I mean, the dude has white cowboy boots. What else can you ask for in life? 1.5, yes, I know, top three, now is four, is Zach Allison, my current coach, guide of guides with Source Endurance. And the number one, even though he is younger than me by a year, and I have oftentimes thought he is both a combination of the smartest person that I have ever met and somebody who drives me absolutely freaking nuts, is Coach Adam Mills. Adam has taught me more about bike racing in the last 10 years than one could possibly imagine. I am constantly learning from these people and I am constantly learning from guests like Adam Meyerson or Peter Olonichek, the folks who are here to talk about mentoring. My name is Rob Kelly. This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. We are a proud member of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. WideAnglePodium.com is your source for the full bevy, the full lineup of shows that we have here, all about the best in independent cycling media. Please become a supporter and subscriber to the Wide Angle Podium. It will help financially support this content creator-owned effort. We are brought to you by Source Endurance, source-e.net. The aforementioned Adam Mills is one of the coaches there, as is my own personal coach, Zach Allison. These are a group of professionals from nutritionists to coaches, 
who are there to help make you a better athlete. They're there to help make you a better version of yourself. They know what it takes to get the best out of your body. They know how to deal with time constraints and the realities of life that we all have to deal with and exist with. They manage time so that you don't have to stress about it. Go to source-e.net, find the program that you like, and use the promo code CRITERIUMNATION, all one word, for $50 off your first month. Here is a also very real fact. In 2018, before I started this podcast, I would have been confronted in a criterium or in a race of any variety, hell on a group ride. I would be confronted with a mistake that I had made or with something that I was doing that was not conducive to the betterment of the group or even my own personal bike riding. And my most common response would have been a derivative of F off or F you or something aggressive like that. It's just not a good way to approach yourself as an athlete, but I knew better than anybody else did because I had been bike racing for 15, 20 years by that point in time. I started this podcast in 2019 and I started asking questions. I've always been an inherently curious person. I listen to my grandfather talk all the time. Most of it is complete bull, but at the time I thought it was gospel, but I, I digress. Since starting this podcast in 2019 and talking to athletes, talking to people who have come before me, done it better than me, know the sport in more detail than I could ever dream of, I can guarantee you I now know less about this sport, but I have learned volumes in that time, enough to fill an encyclopedia galactica of information. And because of that, because of my willingness to drop the ego, to drop the pride that I had felt that would have led to me saying F off to anybody who was going to give me advice on how to be a better bike racer, I have actually become a better, more well-rounded version of myself. And I owe it all to the fact that I'm not afraid anymore to not know the answer to the question. I want to get better. I want even more mentors in my life. And with folks like Brandon Fury, Ethan Crane, Ricky Arnopel from the Project Echelon Files, I am continuing to learn when I talk to Michael Hernandez, Spencer Movenzade, Maggie Coles-Lister, Christina Gokey-Smith, any of the guests that have been on this show, I am learning something and I am applying it to my own life. Drop the ego, guys. Drop it. Approach it as a blank slate. Learn how the craft of racing works and you will get better. I promise you, that is a fact of life. If you are willing to surrender your ego, if you are willing to adopt an open approach to how things are done and to learn from others and apply those lessons to your own life, you will absolutely 100% get better. Now let's talk with Adam Meyerson and Peter Olenicek about why that statement is true.
you know, joining us today are two guys who know a lot about mentorship, both in the fact that one has mentored the other and now the other is mentoring people who are coming up behind him. That's how old we are now, or how experienced we are in this sport. You know, Adam Meyerson, all the way from north of Boston in Massachusetts, is joining us. Adam, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm going to correct you right off the bat because I live in Boston proper. Oh, wow. I thought you were in Revere. Oh, my God. No, I live in Dorchester. I live in, I live, I live south of downtown, but I live in Boston proper. Revere, kid, where did you get Revere for a hometown for me? I'm from Brockton originally. I'm definitely not from Revere. I probably got it from like Spencer Howe or something like that. One of those slow ride guys. They're really loose with their facts. South Shore kid, not not the not the North Shore. And the other folk, the other gentleman joining us all the way from Minnesota, at least I got that part right, is 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 has a little bit of a weird sounding name if you didn't grow up with a Baba or Babushka or Babcha. But, you know, for those of us who are lucky enough to have somebody from the old country, Peter Olenicek, all the way from Minnesota. How are you doing? Doing great. Fantastic. Thanks for having us. Right. And and you've got like a mnemonic for for your name or a phonetic guide for, for folks who like, you know, might be Brad Soner or Frankie Andreo who yeah. may need a little tweak on the pronunciation just in case they see a wall of consonants right in front of them. What's that little guide you got? So it's uh, an ola and you, a knee, point to your knee and a check. And uh, unfortunately, my sister thought it was such a good idea. She's ideating, incorporating it into a tattoo sometime of some kind on her knee. And I'm like, no, let's talk about it first. Let's let's not. But she thinks it's funny. She thinks the knee thing is funny. So she wants to put like a waving hand on one side of her knee and a check mark on the other. And I'm like, no, <laughs> let's not do that. Hey, everybody's got to got to live their best life somehow. And if she wants to do that, rock on with her bad self. So here's the thesis of this of this particular episode and kind of the the way that this came about. And I want to start with this broad question, which should have just like a one word answer or two word answer if I was guiding this thing as a lawyer in a deposition. And I want to see if you guys agree with us or agree with me on it, is that we came out of Tulsa. And a lot of us have been racing all over the place this year, and we probably have our own stories. But Peter, you were at Tulsa, you know, and you saw some things that probably should not have happened at Tulsa. Uh, for those of us who watched it, there were a, a large number of crashes that happened at Tulsa. And there was the instantaneous reaction, which is to, you know, to look at the course design, the barriers, the road guarding, to look at all of these features that are external to the people who are participating in the race and to say that these things need to be changed. But then you two, Adam and Peter, you two started having this conversation online about, wait, let's not look outside first. Let's not look at the race director, the barrier design, you know, the road guards, the EMS guys. Let's look inside. Let's look inside at us and say, this is a set of courses that we've raced on for 14 years now, 15 years now. Why is it this year that we, the racers, are having problems with these courses? Why is it this year that we're seeing more crashes 
or that there's been a rise in the number of, of, you know, crashes in races or sketchy situations in races. What's going on with us? Why don't we start looking internally first? Do you guys agree, and Adam, I'll start with you, that when you see a problem, you should always look at the way that you're confronting the problem first before you potentially start looking outside? Sure. That's reasonable advice. Yeah. What part, what part, what part do you impact? What part of the circle do you touch? What about you, Peter? Do you think that this is a fair place for us to start a analysis of safety in racing? You know, I think that the, the most direct impacts that, you know, the most direct observations that we have can start with ourselves. So, you know, in line with what Adam said, I think, yeah, I mean, starting with, with safety, but is it safety of the environment or is it safety of those operating within that environment? And I think that's kind of like what I observed for the most part. It's, it's those operating in, in the safety that they're conducting themselves within. Let's, let's start there. Let's move from there to this relationship that you two have and why you two are going to be the guys to talk about how we as riders can guide the less experienced riders through the process of becoming safer. If we're the ones in charge, you know, we are the ones who are racing, are hitting those corners, you know, are bumping off of each other in certain situations. We're the ones that are in control of how we interact with our environment. Let's talk about how we teach each other and how we collectively work together in a competitive environment. So the first thing is why you two? Why Adam Meyerson, with the history that you've got in this sport, mentored Peter and why Peter is now mentoring somebody else. So, you know, Adam, we've talked in previous episodes, and I think anybody who's listened to the Meyerson line or any other interview that you've ever done know that you've got the results to back up what you're going to say. But when it comes specifically to this idea of leadership bordering on mentorship, bordering on guidance and professorship, why are you the guy that we should be talking to about this? Rob, it's so difficult because um, even in your introduction, you've touched on so many things and my like galaxy brain is exploding with answers. Like I almost wanted to stop you at the end of every sentence and talk about like, yes, past Tulsa's and how has cycling culture changed and what is the impact of the pandemic on the current skill level of racers, racers out there? What is the impact of increased indoor training time had on the ratio of skill to fitness on racers that are out there right now? The lack of pro teams and real salaries and um, quality of racing. Like there's so many things that go into even just TV time, even just uh, the fact that maybe things aren't that different, but now we have everything on camera. So we see more and we talk about more. Literally, I could, no surprise, I could talk for an hour just responding to the the brief things that you've said so far. So I'm going to do my best to stay focused on the fact that you want to talk about the mentorship aspect because it's it's really a big topic and it has a lot of tentacles. Your question is, what what is my authority here, essentially, from a mentorship standpoint? And I would say, right, is that a good rephrasing of the question? That's a that's a that's a fair summary. Yeah. You know, for me, first of all, you know, I came up in the sport as a junior in the 80s and and you learned about bike racing back then by angry old men on group rides, 
right? The club system was still in place and you showed up for club rides and people with more experience yelled at you basically lovingly. Um, it was a, a culture of hazing, I would say, and that's maybe the negative side of it, but certainly that's what I came up in. Um, and I was very lucky to have people who identified that I had passion early and a little bit of talent and really gave me a lot of attention and, and nurturing as well as tough love and education. Bill Sykes, Paul Curley, Mark and Frank McCormick, Tom Stevens, Diane Fortini, Rick Fortini, Mass Bay Road Club. I just had a group of people outside of my family that folks at Travis Cycling Brock. I could go on on that about that for hours, but I learned a lot about the sport early, and I learned about the culture of etiquette. And uh, you know, we joke about the rules of cycling, um, air quotes there. But in this case, it's about etiquette. Um, what, how do we keep cycling safe? How do you learn to ride two abreast? I learned all those things on group rides in the eighties as a teenager. Then when I started racing, I learned about him from the guys in the races who were just much better than me, Graham Miller. When I, you know, again, Mark and Frank McCormick. And when I started going to the bigger races, I learned about it from Roberto Gaggioli and Tom Schuler and Davis Finney and, you know, all, all the stars of the nineties who were in the same races as me and who were brake checking me or taking me to the curb or none of this stuff was on camera back then. So when you see like helmet cam coverage from say the Williams brothers, and it looks wild or crazy or dangerous, like that's just looks normal. We just didn't have, people just didn't know that that's how it was. We could talk about the impact of that. That's a, a separate topic. So I came up through that era and, and it wasn't always good. There was fist fights in parking lots and people punching each other in field sprints. And I'm glad that those days are more or less over. And cameras are a big reason that they're over. The sport has modernized. It's more visible. And it's just not an okay way to behave anymore. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm the last guy of a generation that learned the sport again through, yeah, a certain amount of, yeah, hazing. I I, I just don't know what else to call it except that. And so I originally passed what I learned on in that same way as one does when, when, when you're, if you're, let's say a, a victim of trauma or abuse that you just, you learned it a certain way, you pass it on a certain, it's like being in the military, a lot of shouting, shouting at people because you wanted them to do better, shouting because they weren't doing things the right way. You kind of want the best for them. And maybe you don't express that in the best way, because as a way to talk to someone during a race. It's different than you might talk to them after a race or someone you, you talk to your teammate different than you talk to someone on another team. Late in my career, I realized I was sort of the, one of the last guys, me, Johnny Sunt, maybe, who were doing it in that style. And it was time to let it go. I just wanted to be helpful. I was a coach at that point. I didn't need to be angry all the time in the bike races. No one needed me shouting at them. Sometimes people probably did need the free coaching, but I also would say I wasn't the most talented am not the most talented bike racer. I do a lot with a little. And so learning how to be efficient in a, in a pack, when to pedal, more importantly, when not to pedal is really the only reason I was able to, able to have a job for as long as I did with the you know low 300s threshold power I was capable of making and you know, the 1200 watts in the sprint. I had a pretty exceptional career with the limited power I was able to generate. I think if I'm good at anything, I was probably best at that. That means you know a lot about bike racing. And then early on, when I did finally turn pro after, you know, sleeping in my car and living off prize money in the 90s um, and kind of giving up on it, you know, I was turning 31. My racing age is 31 when I turned pro. And I was on a team of Neo Pros, sportsbook.com, where I was the most experienced rider on the team. 
And I had already started Cycle Smart at that point. I was already coaching for a living. I had already run under 23 teams as like rider, captain, like raced with a team of under 23s. Uh, I'd just been given that role repeatedly. And so when I turned pro, it's just kind of funny. Like I was a neo pro too, but I was the most experienced guy on the team and got, you know, sort of given that captain's job. And so I just always had that job for every team I was brought to from that point on up until my second to last year as a pro. My last year on Sportsbook was the first year I, when Greed was brought on as the DS, what position that I hired him for was the first time I sort of was, rem- let's say, removed or not given that that opportunity. And so when I, I got to come back in my last year as a pro and finish up with the Stellas, thanks to Andrew Fry, and it was a great year and glad to finish. And that's where my paths crossed with Peter. And I got to pass some of that hazing experience on to him. Let's talk about you, Peter, your side of it. I mean, Estella's was a phenomenal squad. Work with us, uh, you know, on, on those early days with, with Adam. I first, I mean, Adam and I first met in 2014 when I kind of was just coming on into some, like things were clicking for me and I had, I suppose you could call it like a breakthrough result. And that's when I started uh, talking to Adam a bit. And it was thanks to Adam that I had a kind of already started a little bit of a mentorship relationship because we got food after a couple of the races after Gateway Cup that year. This is before we even teammates, right? And then we were in conversation as contracts were coming around. But I mean, I was, I remember telling my dad one time at breakfast that the best part about coming onto Estelle's was having one of the most, if not the most experienced criterium racers as your team captain. And so I'm like, if I'm going to learn anything, it's going to be the most in this season. And so it was super exciting coming into that. And I mean, the seeds, you know, not getting ahead of ourselves, but the seeds that were planted that season things that I didn't even realize were being conveyed to me have now materialized in what, what is the seven years or, you know, what we're seven years down the road. Like there are things I constantly recall upon that in 2015 as teammates, I didn't realize, but now as they materialize, I'm like, Oh, I learned that from Adam. Well, talk about that for a second. Cause like when you met him and when you guys are racing in 2015 together, you are already and elite bike racer by American crit standards. You're, you know, you, you've made it to cat one, two, you know, you, you're not a joker. Estellas is a legit team. If I recall correctly, was a UCI Conti team at the time or not? Yep. When you, when you come into this relationship and when you're, when you're, you're there, you're good by all intents and purposes. What were the things that you saw that you were lacking as far as skill or attitude or, or, you know, like where were you lacking? Yeah. So the single biggest thing that I was lacking is what I've also spent the last seven years of my professional growth and that's receiving feedback. I think that is the most critical thing when it comes to, it's one of the most critical things to mentorship. There's, there's the art of giving feedback and the art of receiving feedback. And for me at the time in my life, I was putting a lot of pressure on myself. I was also very critical of myself, but but when you're doing that, you're also internalizing literally everything that comes across your bow. And at that time, I hadn't matured enough to understand how to receive feedback. And when you're carrying this mindset of, well, I'm trying the best I can to be the best I can possibly be, 
well, it's like, well, how do you get better? How do you improve? And it's by evaluating the consequences of your actions or bringing in feedback to improve on that. And that's kind of a, and I don't, I really don't think it was pride. I think it was just, I didn't know how to accept feedback in the different forms because of whether it was exposure or just raw maturity. And so accepting feedback was a thing I lacked. I think also one thing that I know Adam and I spent a lot of time on was I was very emotional that season. I I I I, I conducted my behavior in races on emotion sometimes rather than being objective and trusting the process of racecraft. And that was a detriment as well, I think, that I was lacking. But that's probably because I maybe needed a year before I, you know, between maybe I needed another year before Estella's. I don't know. That thought has crossed my mind, though. Let's go back to you, Marison, and, and answer the next question, which is, what did you see in Peter? Because I think that's what you were about to talk about. What did you see in Peter that was that made you think that this was a guy who was actually ready to receive that information as opposed to somebody that you say you should, you know, like that you would see in a race and be like, dude, don't, you know, dive bomb me right now. Like said that to someone last weekend, but I didn't yell at him. I said it in full sentence and quietly. So only he could hear me. P how old were you the year we were on Estella's together? I would have been 23, 24. One thing I'll say very quickly in response to this the way Pete told the story is um, Pete was never argumentative. So when he talks about like having trouble taking feedback, it wasn't that he was arguing with anybody or when he's saying he's emotional in the races, it's not that he was having like meltdowns or like lashing out. The thing that Pete left out about the description of himself is he's really, really smart. And sometimes we worry that he was too smart for bike racing. He was very focused on what he was doing and he was thinking really hard and trying really hard to be the best that he could be to the degree that he was getting in his own way. And we'll talk about that more, but I just want to make sure I jump in here and like qualify what he's saying, because I think people can get the wrong idea. Like Pete is a really friendly, kind and caring person. And he was then as well, but he was vibrating with anxiety all the time because he was trying so hard to be good at this. I think what I saw about him in the year before or what I saw in him in the year before is a thing that I did often. I think one of my best values as a team captain who was often also part of the management, like I was at, at Smart Stop or it started as Time Pro Cycling and then Smart whatever. But even before that on NIRAC and other teams, I would be in the races, racing, trying to get a result, trying to help out guys on my team get results. And so I would see at like the hardest point of the race someone make an attack that would like be blowing the race apart that might not turn into a result and that you would only have seen and known if you were actually in the race, watching how someone turns, watching how they pedal, watching when they attack. So I think I was doing one of the best jobs of talent ID um, in the 2000s, simply by being out there in the races, racing against guys and seeing the things that they were doing at the critical points of the race and saying, oh, that guy just needs some direction. I can turn that fitness into race results. Um, if I can teach that guy how to pedal less or when to pedal at the right times or how to be part of a team, maybe I can look at their training, whatever. I think that's why all those teams I was on was a, were always able to bring up riders that, other, that were getting overlooked. I loved finding the overlooked rider that I, I like fixing people, right? So that's what you do as a coach. And so I think that's Pete fit into that. 
Peter, I don't think you knew exactly how you were doing what you were doing before you came to the team. You were just riding on instinct and pedaling hard and it was fun and you were having success. And so it, you clearly looked like you were ready for the next step. And then I think the challenge for Pete was the next step had, it was serious. It was a job. There were expectations. His, his teammates weren't necessarily always going to be patient with him. There were things you simply had to do. You had to be capable of doing a thing. You had to go to the front when it was time. We didn't care how you felt. We'll talk about how you feel after the race. We don't care if it's hard. It's bike racing. It's supposed to be hard. We don't, we'll talk about how hard it was later. We have to go to the front right now with all the guys and do the chase. We have to go to the front right now with all the guys and do the lead out. And sometimes you have to be short with people. Certainly that was my style at the time. You have to just direct and bark and do this, do that. And I like post-race meetings. I like pre-race meetings. I like post-race meetings, but I don't have time to be kind or comforting or in the race, I just need a thing to happen. Uh, and I think that was hard for Pete. I don't know. That may not always have been the best approach back then, but I think Pete, I, I, my recollection is what that led to for you was a lot of pressure. And I think sometimes doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. But the thing that I remember most was a lot of crashes. You were over your limit and you were given it everything. And maybe you were over your skill limit, but I recall a lot of crashes that were like bad for you and bad for us. I remember it being frustrating for everybody at times because we know and knew how good you are and what you were capable of. And it led to you sort of not clicking with the team all the time, right? And is that, is that a good, you remember it was like that? Yeah, the, the, I remember, um, I remember like, I remember one, one specific instance, I was sitting around a bonfire at Jake Sittler's house and it was like Clay and Jake and I can't remember if Matt was there or something, but they're like, Hey man, like you got to turn this around. Like this is on you right now. Like you got to turn this around and get out of your head because you're at a point of no return if you don't, you know? And so, and then with the crashing too, like to your point, there were some times where I should have called Andrew and said, Andrew, I need, I need a week to just remove myself. But I kept thinking that the next race was going to be better. But then you get a couple races later, you crash again. And what that does to the headspace, I don't think is very conscious in, in the forefront. Like this year, here's a perfect example. I haven't crashed in a lot in a, in a while until this year. I had a crash at Quad Cities in the final sprint, someone, whatever, long story short, someone swiped a wheel. But I knew at that moment, based off what I learned in 2015, that I needed to not race the rest day, the next day, no matter how my body felt. And even if I could pedal a bike, but because mentally there's something subconscious about being able to detach and reset and collect yourself. And so there's things like that, that come around that season, but getting back to your point. Yeah, there was, there was some crunch points in the season that there were, that were red flags for myself. And I should have, in hindsight, I should have taken action sooner on them. I, I think my style at the time, you know, I, I do like to my think of myself as like nurturing and not necessarily mean or impatient. Like I, I wanted the best for you. I want to be the best rider you could be. And so there might be quiet conversations like after the race or in the van or philosophical conversations, like real recaps about what we were doing and how we were doing it. There's a lot of learning through osmosis and just talking in the van where a lot of knowledge gets transmitted. But I'm sure there were aspects of like, uh, there's also a job we had to do for the team. And in a certain point, like if you can't get the job done, there's a whole bunch of other people who want this job, who can do the job. And 
it's funny for how little money we're getting paid in the grand scheme of things and, and how little we were racing for, even though we were pros, it, it just feels like there's a lot at stake. And it's when you're in it, it's the most important thing in the world. It's more important, seems more important than it actually is. But you know, when you're, when you're dedicated to that and you're certainly, we're, none of us were dedicated to it for the money, not because we weren't doing it for the money. We were doing it because we loved bike racing and we're happy to be getting paid enough to be able to do it, to be able to live that lifestyle. And that's, that's about all it was. And maybe I'm, I'm jumping ahead to this too much, but it, it too soon, but it does make me think like, I have some regrets about that year because I think we were not kind enough to you. I don't think we nurtured you. I, I should speak for myself, not anybody else, but I do think there was an atmosphere in the team. Some of our teammates who we're still friends with, we all have really sarcastic, biting senses of humor. And I know like my second year as a pro, I was in a, a team full of really nice guys when I was on Sharper Image, really nice guys from Oklahoma. And our, the three guys from New England who got kept from the team we're on and brought to that team, we were a little, with, with the exception of Jason Waddell, a little too sarcastic, a little, a little too mean for those guys. And it didn't always get received as it was intended. I think of Pete, I think of you and that as a very, you're a very nice Midwestern boy. <laughs> and we were maybe mean to you, you know, inadvertently in a time where you were really struggling. And I, when I think back about it, I think we were much harder on you than we needed to be. Um, we should have been, you know, we were all trying to get results and the results mattered and we're really caught in the middle of that. But when I think back to that, I think, man, we were not nice to Pete. Like we did not bring him along in the way that we should have brought him along. So when I, I have regrets about that. So I, I'm sorry for that. Honestly, I think about it a lot. You know, that's, you said you've matured obviously. And, and I can see it just from racing with you, you know, a couple of weeks ago and how you carry yourself and how much better your team rode when you showed up you know, you just immediately like took on this leadership, calm leadership role. And I could see the effect, the team, the team rode better the minute you got there. And the effect was, was clear, but I was so happy when I saw what you wrote on that Tulsa post. Cause I was like, Oh shit, that came out of my mouth. He's literally repeating something that I said to him when we are teammates, like this is almost verbatim the way I would have said it. And I knew in that moment that I had had an impact on you when I, if for better or for worse, with all the things that were challenging about that year, that it had stuck. And you described that in the beginning of the podcast, that it it's resurfacing for you. And sometimes you have to have a certain amount of experience to even be able to take the direction. I think about my cyclocross camp that we run as an example, people come back year after year after year. And it's the same instruction every year. Camp doesn't change. They hear things the second year, the third year, the fourth year that they they didn't hear the first year. It didn't click for them. They weren't experienced enough to actually make sense of that instruction. Um, and that's a little bit of what you described. Like you needed to gain a little bit more experience to really be able to implement the things that I was trying to teach you then. And you certainly absorbed and learned and improved. I also think you that season really kind of broke you and required a step back for a little bit for you to collect yourself and think about whether or not you loved bike racing or not. And so it's been great to watch you come back and succeed at the level that you've succeeded and, and, and be the leader and the mentor that you've been. And I don't know if I'm allowed to be proud of you, but I am. Well, let's, let's look at results because it's, it's an objective measurement. Peter, the year that you raced on Estellas, your results were not particularly good. You were racing for a UCI team. You, the team probably had different goals than Peter winning. 
you know, the goal was for somebody else to succeed and you did your job. Yeah, obviously there were a lot of bumps along the way. The next year in 2016, you raced for Revolution Cycle and Ski, smaller team. You had good results. You know, you were on the podium in a lot of races, but you were on the podium in, you know, the St. Peter State Championship time trial or the, you know, the lacrosse omnium or the gopher crit. It wasn't until you got on Bora in 2017 where you started getting back to, you know, winning a stage at Joe Martin or winning the GC at Joe Martin. And, you know, flash forward to 2022, now on Project Echelon, your results are no longer about you. Your results are about the team. And so, like, for example, you don't know this because, you know, you weren't part of the conversation. I questioned somebody on Project Echelon. I'm like, why are you sending that particular squad to Redlands? You know, why is Peter Olenicek going to Redlands? That's not a race that Peter is going to do particularly well at. And the response I got back was, Peter's going there because Peter's the leader. He's the guy who's going to get everybody going in the right direction at the right time and get the result done. And what was the result is that Tyler Stites wins the GC and does it in dramatic fashion. You got your job done and it had nothing to do with you getting 70th or whatever. You were Peter Olenicek, the guy who was driving the ship. What has it been? What was the flip that got switched from 2016, you know, to the present? Where did you take your ego out of it and realized I have a job to do? You know, and it's it's funny you ask that because I I've had this conversation a few times. If if I may have just an extra minute, like 2016 was kind of like a a get back to fun season, you know, with some of my closest friends in Minnesota, and that's why yeah, we did a lot of Midwest regional races. But we had team chemistry was super great and. When we started the Bora Factory Racing Team, that was when, you know, this is a year later, 2017, where we didn't have cycling as our identity. And therefore, we weren't dependent upon that lasting impact. And I think that that's a little bit of like not being dependent on cycling being successful was a little bit in to not taking myself so seriously on the matter. I also think that it was in those few seasons that I was able to exercise a leadership position, which forced me to recall upon everything I knew. So when it came to a criterion, how do we do a lead out? Literally, like I could write a textbook. I've thought of, I've considered it. I've started the document multiple times of like everything I've learned about bike racing. And um, so, so it's, 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 it's finding myself just as Adam mentioned, when he found himself in a leadership role, it's once you find yourself in a leadership role that people are looking to you for the direction. And um, like I said, we kind of when we started that team, it was great, and we were able to perform at a certain level. And then coming into Project Echelon full circle, I have a little bit of people who listen to this podcast are going to laugh, but we've been floating around the phrase of imposter syndrome. That I too was like, I told my directors, I was like, guys, I feel like I'm the weakest link here in this group, just because, you know, like you've got some incredible riders who are strong, but really like, I think I don't give my 
my experience the benefit of the doubt sometimes. And so that's actually what I've been dealing with this year is a little bit of like, oh, I I do know what I'm doing. And I think it's because I'm always open-minded to what I don't know. And I'm fixated on what I don't know so that I can turn it around and make it something I do know. That when it comes to the forefront, they're like, oh man, Peter, I wish you were going to this race. Like you totally know what you're doing. And I'm like, do I? Like you guys are giving me too much credit, but it's because I'm still on this journey of learning and trying to find mentorship myself, probably still even at this point in my career, because it feels weird to have people come to you for the mentorship. I can tell you 15, 16 years into practicing law, I'm still looking for mentors left and right. And people are coming to me asking me questions that would lead me to believe that they believe I should be a mentor to them. And I'm just like, (laughs) that's a scary situation. But here's where yeah. we here's where we bridge. This is the bridging point. You've got Tyler, Hugo, Ethan Crane, a set of guys who are under 25 years old, meaning they're still very malleable compared to, you know, somebody who's in his 30s and 40s, but to be honest, those people still need to take lessons very much too from those who've come before us. So, you've got guys like that you know, and, and none of them showed up at Tulsa, which is kind of the thing that drove us to this point. But let's imagine they did show up at Tulsa. A lot of the things that are ending up causing crashes or ending up causing unpleasant conversations in the field are things where people are trying to push an advantage that they don't have or that they shouldn't take. Sometimes the quickest line through a corner is actually not to attack. It's to back off for a second and accelerate after the corner. Adam, I'm going to come to you second part for this because I know that you've got a lot of feelings about you know the way that you approach a race. But I want to start with Peter when it comes down to how are you teaching Ethan, a 20-year-old, how to mentally approach being a good trainable athlete as opposed to just being a phenomenal engine. I think with Ethan, most of our conversations, when I think to the times we've had together and spending a lot of decent amount of one-on-one time, a lot of the conversations surprisingly have been not technical aspects of racing. And it's simply because the way someone is carrying themselves in life permeates into how they race their bike a little bit. And so a lot of our conversations, Ethan and I have been sympathetic points in conversations about where his confidence is at, where his, what he, what his expectations were and where they are now. And then we identify, discuss, and try to solve those points. So with Ethan, for example, he had an injury earlier this season, right? He broke his arm uh, back home racing and that set him back in fitness and training a bit and jumbled up his race schedule. He's concerned about wasted time. He's concerned about missed opportunities. He's concerned about a couple of things, right? And so once we can get his, similar to where I was, once we can get his perspective and have him feel supported in the right environment, then when he shows up to the start line, his head is in the most collected spot it can be. And that's not going to be perfect for everyone, right? But when it comes to directly racing in Tulsa, the technical spots we did talk about in our pre-race meeting were very much the ebb and flow of what Meyerson, what Adam mentioned earlier with like, 
where to pedal, where not to pedal. Like, hey, between corner two and three, don't touch the pedals. Save that match every lap. You can do it. You don't think you can, but find it. Find find the finesse between corners one and two. Outside of corner one, you know, so we talk about elements of the course that I think I can provide insight that most riders can't. I don't hear other riders talking to other riders. And that's part, I mean, that's part of the team dynamic. But then when it comes to mentoring Ethan, I think it's a bit of a shepherd. Like the way I was originally taught before with before Adam, there was Tony Olson, who was a teammate of mine on Grand Performance back in 2014. It was kind of a one-in-one cat and mouse shepherding. Like, hey, stick on, like he could, Tony would just keep hitting his butt. Like, stay on my wheel, stay on my wheel. Don't leave my wheel. Why do you leave my wheel? Like, we're going to shoot. We're going to go here. We're going to go there. Like, follow me, follow me. So it's kind of like a shepherd, a little bit of like a carrot, whatever analogy you want to use. And um, that's kind of the strategy I, I used. So off the bike and on the bike are very mutually go hand in hand. Myers and you and I raced at Plainfield back in Memorial Day weekend. And I was actively trying to follow your lines in that race because I wanted to understand what it was that you were doing that made it so much easier for you to succeed in races than what I was doing. Because I had always been of the belief that you just have to pedal harder. That's the end result. Just keep pedaling harder, push that FTP up, do whatever you can to make it so that, you know, you can just ride everybody off your wheel. But talking to Frank Cundiff, and I hate giving Frank credit, but here we go. I'm going to give him credit. You know, he talked about how cerebral you approach a the technical part of races asking him in races why are you pedaling there why did you go through that line why didn't you come wide through corner two and things like that and so i was like well myerson's parked right next to me in the parking lot he's in this race i don't have any ambitions of winning this race i have ambitions of learning how to be a better bike racer i have a feeling that there are a lot not a lot of people actually who will go into a race and just say, I want to learn how to be better at this racing thing. Is that part of why we are seeing so many people ending up on the ground? Because people are aggressive to win as opposed to aggressive to figure out how to win. I'll start, I'll start with this little tidbit. So Peter, were you previously teammates with Tim? Um, who are your teammates with now? Tim, um, Savory. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 2014 was the, that the year we were teammates as well in grand performance. That's what I thought. Yeah. So I've, I've always been friendly with him. And I think part of why I knew him back then was because you were friendly with him when we were teammates. And that's how he, I, I got to know him a little bit. He said to me at, after one of the really hard stages at toad, some of the days it's, you know, there's a couple of stages at toad that are like only half the field finishes and they're wildly hard. And at 50, those are the stages that I'm getting the best results in. And so that's confusing to people, right? <laughs> um, and, and part of it is that, yeah, because I'm pedaling less than at the right times and, I'm, and I'm, I'm using my momentum to my advantage as best I can. But Tim said to me the next day, he's like, we all looked at your Strava last night. <laughs> uh, and we could not, like he's talking about the whole project, his, the Project Echelon guys that he was staying with, his teammates. He's like, we looked at your Strava last night and we cannot believe how little power you needed to get the results that you're getting. And we're just blown away by that. And so I told everybody, I was just going to follow you around tonight to see how you do it. And, and I laughed and it's, it's obviously what Rob's talking about now. And 
it's very flattering. I really appreciated the comment actually. And I told him that, and we were just kind of joking about it, but I have to be honest, like, it's nice to be recognized for the things that you're good at, because the thing that I'm good at is pretty invisible. You have to know. And so Robin, you decided to um, follow me around. Certainly people have done that. And people who figure it out, realize like, sometimes people figure it out by accident because I'm at the back of the field and they're taking the spot that I'm leaving for myself. And I have to say something to them. And I'll, instead of yelling at those people now, I'll say, Hey, there's a few of us back here on purpose. We're not back here because we have to be, we're just waiting to go to the front. If you want to make the race easier for yourself, just pay attention to what we're doing and do what we do. If I leave myself a little, a little space before the turn, I'm not getting dropped. You can trust me. I'm going to roll into that space. Or sometimes they'll just be like three dudes who are suffering at the back, who think that they can end their suffering if they could only move up. And those same three dudes spend the whole race passing each other, not going anywhere. You guys, you know, we're, we're on a podcast, so you can't see me gesturing with my hands as they make a, the, they're just circling the drain and I'm riding behind them, leaving space to them and rolling up on them, probably making 50 to hundred Watts less on average than they are as they each sprint by each other on the entrance to every turn and then slam on their brakes and then have to sprint out of the turn as I literally coast by them on the exit of the turn, because I left myself some space on the entrance. So yeah, I mean, I focus on entrance speed, adjusting my entrance speed to carry momentum for maximum exit speed. And that's probably the single most important thing I learned how to do that kept me employed in bike racing for 13 years as a pro that in a career that didn't start till I was 31. Right. So think about that. I didn't do that on fitness. Right. I mean, of course there's a minimum standard that I had to meet, but again, like I did a lot with a little these days still to this day, like, yeah, my agility is going down a little bit. I'm starting to feel 50. There's things that are changing. I'm aware of it. It's, it's finally happening. And I think part of that is from the injuries that I've had for the past couple of years. It's been hard to come back but I lost some of my superpowers, let's say from being injured and finally from getting older. But at Toad, I started to feel like myself again for the first time since, yeah, since 2020, since my ACL surgery and breaking my shoulder and breaking my ribs and so on. It's good that I can sprint. That helps, right? Those are my genetics. That's my body type. So how do I make the most out of the fitness that I have? Robbie talked about like, you just want to get as strong as possible and ride people off your wheel. Well, you still have to do that. You still have to do that training. The training is different. I still train to be as strong as I possibly can be. My, my threshold power isn't low because I don't train. I work on my weaknesses every day and then you race to your strengths, you know? So I don't, I think I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little bit off track and I'm not sure if I've, uh, I've answered your original question here. Should we circle back? Yeah. Let's circle back and, and talk about something you said to me in the parking lot after the fact, because we were talking about how we felt during the race. And I was telling you about racing masters at speed week and what my decision process was going to be for the next day, which was Somerville and whether I would race the masters at Somerville or race the senior categories at Somerville. And you asked me a very, a very strange to me question because I had never thought about it that way. And the word that you used was appropriate. What was appropriate for you. And I have never in my bike racing life thought about applying the word appropriate to anything. And I think that appropriate, the way that I'm using it, the way that I'm defining it in my head is 
what matches your capacities versus what matches your desire. So, you know, you can dial it down to appropriate. Is it appropriate for you to go outside on this corner and try to squeeze through this narrow stretch? Or is it appropriate for you to be at this race at all? We've got this luxury in the United States where the, the, the upgrading system has changed. And sometimes people are in races that are like you talked about with Peter, you're just simply in over your head. And so, you know, were there a percentage of the guys at Tulsa who were capable of being in that race, meaning they were eligible to be in that race, but they didn't have the physical or mental capacity to exercise what they needed to do. Because I'll tell you, from my perspective at Harlem, there were a lot of guys that had the physical capacity to ride a flat four-corner crit, but the decision-making processes that they were going through were not appropriate. It was like, I'm going to dive bomb corner four and take it really far wide outside when there's like 30 meters on the inside that I could easily cover. So talk to us about that concept of what you mean about appropriate when you start talking about decision-making in races. Sure. Um, and the thing I want to bookmark too, one, I want to ask you what you learned at Plainfield, if anything. So let's bookmark that. And also, I really do want to talk about, I want to make sure before we're done, we talk about the current crop of riders or the, the atmosphere or the status of the sport right now. I think there's a change. I am experiencing, I've been racing for 35 years. I think things are different right now. And I want—I do want to talk about that. And I think we can tie that back into why was everybody falling down at Tulsa and decide. That was going to be my very next question. Building this in this direction is appropriate. And then where are we now? Followed by what can we do? Great. Okay. Cause my, like I said, my brain has been exploding this whole time. So if I let's, yeah, great. I'm glad that's where we're going. I don't remember saying that to you, but it sounds like something I would say. So, uh, I think I can revisit it even though I don't remember it as clearly when I think about, I'm asking you that question. Cause it's a question I ask myself. And so when people ask me, am I going to do the masters at Somerville? Let's say I'm 50. I am certainly entitled. I have earned the right to race any master's race I want to race, right? But for me, the only place it's been fulfilling or felt appropriate for the most part has been at national championships. There has to be a championship. There has to be something on the line. They were given a thousand dollar preems in the 50 plus race at Janesville at Toad. And that was hard to watch. <laughs> I would have loved to be out there. I didn't, for the all the results that I got, oh, I have my checks right here. I made $695 overall at Toad for the 12th place overall and a couple of top 10s and the rest of the top 20s that I got. I could have I made $1,000 in a single sprint in Janesville. It did not feel appropriate to me. And not because I'm an ex-pro. I'm 50. I do not care that I was an ex-pro. That is not relevant to whether or not I choose to race Masters now. I was lucky enough to be a pro and race for results and at the highest level. And, and there are times that that matters to me. And that's at national championships when there's you know a jersey on the line. I care about that. I, I leave myself space to care about that. What I'm more interested in is racing at the highest level that I'm capable of weekend in, weekend out, and finding out what whether I can still do it, what that level is, 
and also staying sharp. I don't want to get dull. The thing that I'm worried about as I age is getting dull. I don't want to stay out there until I'm in the way or a danger to the other cat ones who are in the race. But if I don't sharpen my blade against the pro one fields, I'm going to lose those skills that I rely on. I'm going to lose my sharpness. I don't think winning the master's race at Tora Somerville would be very fulfilling for me, frankly. And I mean that with full respect for the people for whom that is a goal. And that is important. I really, there's no judgment in that. We all have to make the choices that are appropriate for us. And I respect that. And I coach those athletes, right? I'm looking, my fulfillment comes in a different place. And maybe it's because I did have the chance to be a a pro. And so I think when I do the master's races, I can only lose. That's often how it feels to me. People expect me to win. And often the master's races are just as hard, if not harder than the pro one, two races. They're just a little shorter, but they're on the whole time. I have to cover more moves. When I race twice in a day, often my normalized power for the master's race will actually be higher than what it is for the pro race. Also, because I can't do the things that I do in the master's races. They're not hard enough for me to hide the way I hide. And it needs to be really hard. So there's a bunch of guys going as hard as they can, making as hard as they can while I'm hiding and their level is coming down to me. It doesn't happen in the master's race. Those strong guys will just disappear off the front. And I have to go after them. I don't have to do that in the first. So I actually can get better results in a sense in harder races. So for you, asking you, bring this back to you in terms of what was appropriate for you. I was asking you to be fair and to yourself with that question um, is how I vaguely remember it. Like, have you set goals for yourself? What's appropriate for you? Is the is racing the pro one, two race sort of inappropriate because it's a level above where you're at and then that's okay. Is the master's race a more appropriate field for you to compete in? And, and can you allow yourself to be happy with that? Because it's all equal, right? No one's a better person than somebody else because they're racing in the pro run race or at a higher level compared to someone who's just starting off in the, like, I'll interrupt myself. I, I was present for all of the novice women's races at toad. It was great watching those races every day and seeing those new riders, like figuring things out and going hard and giving it everything. Like it matters to them just as much as it mattered to us at the end of the day. So I, I think it's all equal. And so just finding your spot, what's going to make you happy. What, what's appropriate for you. It's kind of the nature of that question. Let's go to the atmosphere right now, but let's go to the guy who's on the ground because we're talking about Tulsa. That would be Peter in three minutes. So succinct as possible. What was it like inside that field for those three days at Tulsa? I'm going to bullet point it here. So let's talk about just riding in the field. The words that the things that I was observing were shiftiness, shiftiness in the form of unpredictable riding, uncomfortable in proximity with others, uncomfortable at speed in the corners. So what this results in, take the first night, Blue Dome, corner one, two, three. It's a right-hand corner, right? We're shoulder to shoulder on the straightaway. People are vibrating. You can't see my hands, but people are vibrating because they're, there's riders in the mix that are vibrating because they're over-controlling their bike. They're over-steering. They're not composed. They haven't been, to this whole discussion, mentored in quite simply how to ride your bike from a, from the hips, from a stable position, 
We've got riders who are riding like 34 millimeter wide or 34 centimeter wide bars with their hoods turned in and they're trying to do a crit and they've only turned their bike like 70 times. Like, you know, like little things. Like I remember going back, I'm going to keep this short, but like Adam and I had a conversation about stack and reach when we were teammates together. I fell for the trap of like trying to get low and arrow and whatever, but no, like at the end of the day, I am back on 42 centimeter bars. And I have a hundred millimeters, 110 millimeter stem, because that's what puts me in the most stable in control position possible. So we've got a combination of like fallacies and exposure about uh, misinformation about bike fit, but that's not even the big thing. It's, it's about, are you comfortable riding next to someone at 35 miles an hour going through a corner eight wide? So that was the first experience right away at Tulsa. The other thing was this fighting what you brought up, are we racing for position or are we racing to win the bike race? A lot of racers miss the big picture of the race. They get fixated in the moment, which is really easy to do because you're every set straight away, every corner you're managing. They don't have what a mentor does is a mentor has their hand on their shoulder and is your, your compass, basically your compass in a race of like, okay, this is what's actually important right now. And this is, isn't, if you're not if you're not moving all the way to the front, you should just be resting. You know, kind of like what Adam talked about. Like what you're doing in the race at a certain moment has to have purpose and meaning. And if if you're just racing the same dude for the one spot, what is that spot? What, what how is that spot contributing to you winning the bike race? Because if you're in a pro one two race, your goal should be to win the bike race. The one other thing, and this is, I'm really, I'm really hesitant to touch on it because it's going to be this cultural shift and skill development, but is, 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 do we have people willing to share that? So I don't know this rider's name, but at Blue Dome, I kept finding myself next to him and he consistently was changing his lines in every corner. He was shifty. He was using the brakes. And at one point I turned to him and I said, Hey man, you're going to have to make a decision right now because you're, you're out of control. You're out of your, you're, you're over the limit right now. That's the second time you've, 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 you've done that or third time or whatever. And, and he looked at me and he was like, kind of shocked that I was like talking to him in the middle of the race, mid corner, like you need to stop what you're doing right now and go to the back. <laughs> and, and like, I was so matter of fact about it, but it was after the fact I'm like, okay, that's kind of savage, but um, but you know, it's just one of these, you didn't, you didn't shout at him though. The key is you didn't shout at him. Yeah. You just, when you talk to people in full sentences, when they're in the cr- middle of a crisis, it really gets through to them. They can't believe that you saw them. They can't believe that you observed something that you could identify and then communicate to them. And then you did it in a full sentence while they were trying not to get dropped. And to your point, like, think about just using a raw example, someone like break checks the corner really hard. And they're like, hey, what the fuck? You know, blah, blah, blah. Like, what takeaway does that expletive have on the riders around? Nothing. Like, there's no conclusions because let's be honest, the average person is too prideful to think it's their fault. So, how are they, like, so quite simply, like, constructive feedback? Like, why would you grab your brakes in that situation? Like, there's sometimes I'll just be like in the creative, like, why are we breaking? <laughs> They'll be like, oh, oh, good question. Why are we breaking? But, but more direct communication is is obviously needed. And one point I like have to touch on because it's going to crack me is like there are too many races, and I've used this analogy for years, that go into every race and just like a Yahtzee, it's just a roll of the dice. 
they don't actually have a plan going into the race. They line up on the start line. They do their routine. They do their openers. They do their warm up. They put on their lotion. They put on their, they take their 700 milligrams caffeine and they don't actually have a plan for the race. And they just hope to get a decent result and feel good about it in the end. That is such an issue. <laughs> Adam, build on that. This is, this is where I know I'm going to sit back for a few minutes. Let's circle back to a couple things first. You didn't tell us what you learned at Plainfield, and I'll use this to segue into this answer. So we started talking about you taking the opportunity to follow me around a bit. And so what did you see when you followed me? Were you able to do it? I was able to do it. I was able yeah. to do it. There were two or three people that I followed pretty regularly at Plainfield. You were one of them. Uh, a guy from ButcherBox uh, named Jet was another one. Jetty, you know, Stephen Jetty. And you know yeah. why? And you know why Stephen Jetty can do that? Because he's a lot bigger than me. I don't know why. Because no, I taught him how to do it. He's one of my friends. <laughs> I ride with him a lot. Okay. Yeah. So, he, yeah. you know, I learned first and foremost that the line that there is no problem taking the outside or the inside through any corner. You know, you know, you just have to manage it. And the second thing is there, there is this mad crash or rush 30 seconds, not 30 seconds, but five seconds before a corner and everybody seems to want to just get as close to that corner as possible. And then, you know, hit the left-hand turn in that case, cause that's all the turns in that race. But if you pause for just a half of a second right before that corner and you lower that shoulder into it and you start to accelerate, you can carry a lot more out of that corner than if you speed up, hit your brakes, and then go through the corner sort of thing. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think those that free coaching is available in every race, right? If I'm there... You can just watch what I'm doing. There's free coaching to be had. I do like to be helpful. I definitely will rescue people who are struggling at the back too. Like, cause usually if someone's struggling at the back, they're also, they're interfering with what I'm trying to do. And it's kind of to my benefit to give them a little free coaching and say that happened to Toad a few times where there were some, some folks I could tell were a little bit racing over their head. And again, like kept doing this thing, like, it'll be easier if I just move up. And I, and I, a few times said, Hey, follow what we're doing. Chill out pedal here, coast here. And people would thank me later. They realized I wasn't yelling at them because it can be tricky to give people coaching that they didn't ask for and have that be helpful rather than uh, me just losing my temper with someone because they're impacting me or because a lot of times you just want the best for people. And I think if you're someone who's really self-critical, uh, it can be very easy for that. You want the best for everybody. You want everybody to operate at the limit of their potential. And that can come out as like yelling at people, being angry at people, and it can be really misunderstood. It took me a long time to get a handle on that for myself where I was actually helpful and not yelling at someone because I wanted them to do better, right? I deal with that every day now as a dad, trying not to do that also. Okay, so bringing it back to like what's going on right now and like the state of the current rider. I mean, I've done Tulsa a million times, even though I didn't do it this year. And there's always crashes at Tulsa. I don't know. It's nothing about the courses per se. There's just some kind of atmosphere at Tulsa that's a little bit different. It's really exciting. I often used to contrast Tulsa with armed forces because they used to be on the same weekend. And it was really funny to have them on the same weekend because like one is the family-friendly, kind of conservative, you know, DC, like not just DC, Crystal City, right? Like it's, I mean, it's a race of a 
sponsored by the military. That actually was the race that I always went to because it was closer and convenient. So when those two races conflicted, um, conflicted, I did I did armed forces usually. Tulsa's the party. Tulsa's the adults only atmosphere. It's a it's a very different type of race and type of um, vibe. And sometimes I felt like that led to a lot of the crashes at Tulsa. People are just amped, but. It was only the first day I ever felt like there were a lot of crashes. The other nights, there's just a normal amount of crashes, in my opinion. Now, were there more crashes this year or did things seem out of hand this year? They might have. And I think you're seeing that everywhere. And why are we seeing that? Well, I guess as I jump into that, I'll say one more thing that I didn't want to leave out because I actually needed to start writing some things down or they were going to get lost. When we talk about evaluating the courses and things that people aren't doing when they're evaluating the courses... Um, I, I treat criterium courses as cyclocross courses. When I have pre-race meetings with my athletes about the race that they're on, whether I'm on the phone, one of my benefits as a coach is I've done almost every big race in America 10 or 20 times. So when an athlete I'm coaching says, hey, I'm doing Boise Twilight this weekend, what do I need to know? And I can say, well, in turn one, there's this crack that is on the inside of the turn and you have to go outside of that crack. And if you do, it sets you up for the exit. On the, like That's the kind of course breakdown that I am still doing with my athletes now that's based on my experience as a pro. And I think that's, it's not unique, but it's very valuable and not everybody can do that. But part of that is your approach and your mentality. And I think everybody should and can take that approach to their criterium racing. Find the lines. You can't always take the line that you want, but you can't always take the line you want in a cyclocross race either. So you've got to know where the entrances and exits to the turns are, where the hot lines are, where to pedal, where not to pedal. So I do evaluate crit courses like cross courses. Part of that is the terrain and part of that is the flow or the rhythm of the race. Where do you need to be in the pack? How is the rhythm it takes a few laps to find the rhythm of a race. I can sometimes predict it ahead of time just based on experience. But if you can't, you need to know, do I have to stay in the top 10? Can I sit behind the bubble? Can I sit in 30th while 10 riders are attacking and 20 riders are racing each other to be 11th? Can I be 30th soft pedaling? Can I go all the way to the back and stay out of everything and, and actually like sit up gigantically? You can do this at Tour Somerville, right? You can sit up on the back stretch and not pedal until the exit of the turn. So um, not everybody can do that. That does require some experience and skill, but that's, those are the, that's the way I evaluate it. So what do I see now that's different? We hit on it a little bit earlier, but it's a culmination of things that, that started with the pandemic and the lack of racing. You know, we had a whole season for most people without racing. And in that season, there's certainly... I don't think I'm saying anything original here. I'll start by saying this. This isn't a thing that only I've identified. I think everybody sees this. But before direct drive trainers, before Zwift, before rocker plates, I rode indoors or on a trainer once a year. I always went outside. I did all of my training outside. Now, of course, when I was a pro, I went to Tucson every winter also. There's some benefit there. But I even as a junior, you know, I had rollers. Uh, that's all I had as a trainer when I eventually got a set of rollers, but I still rode outside all the time. These days now, I, I can go weeks of riding indoors. Even I do this, right? Like Zwift is amazing. My Saris Direct Drive H3 trainer is amazing. Um, I have a rocker plate 
and I have two screens and a laptop, you know, like I'm a, I'm a rich master now. I got an indoor setup. So I'm doing this too. But I think we had a whole bunch of people come into the sport who got really, really strong without racing. They were developing their fitness without developing their skills. And because of the death of the club system, because of the death of the mentored group ride, I'm not talking about Wednesday night worlds, Tuesday night worlds, where everybody just shows up and tries not to get hit by cars as they run stop line, stop, stop signs to, to win the imaginary sprint finish. I'm talking about like mentored group rides where you learn how to ride to a rest. And, um, you know, there's still some rides like that. I think work really well. I think about the winter bike league in Athens is a great example of like a, a mix of organized to abreast group ride with some attack zones where you get let off your leash and you get to do a little bit of racing. They just don't happen like that. So people aren't learning etiquette and skills in these mentored club rides like, like I did in the eighties. And so this mix of increased fitness, increased technology, everybody knows how to train now. Everybody has a power meter. There's not a lot of mystery. Um, you can buy a canned training program and probably get better if you follow it. More people have coaches, things like that. So people are fitter and you see this at the highest level of the sport. Everybody's better. And even the young, young riders are better. So we know this isn't just like, because there's different drugs or doping, like, like sports are improving. The other aspect, the third aspect that I think is the real difference aside from those those two things are like moments in time. There's another thing happening right now. And I started to describe it as like the aerodynamicists. There is a type of rider. There have always been people who are interested in time trials and focused on doing things like making sure they had aero helmets, even before aero helmets were a thing. That's not exactly new, but there is a trend right now, a fad even of yeah, setting your bike position up for maximum aerodynamics, like you're on a TT bike without aero bars, but then even doing things like turning your hoods in so that you can get around the puppy paws ban. These things make it very, very hard to handle your bicycle. It is not conducive to agility or speed changes or even being out of the saddle narrow bars with your hoods turned in. It's not that everybody's bars are necessarily low because people are looking for flat backs, but they're also looking for flat forearms. If you have flat forearms, you aren't steering your bike. You aren't a cat. You aren't in the athletic ready position with your weight balanced between your hands and your feet supported by your saddle. The athletic ready position is absolutely what you need to be able to race in a criterium. You need to be agile. Agility should be the highest priority for a bike racer racing criteriums, not aerodynamics. I'll give you the best example of this. I've been waiting to write about this. I'm gonna actually unleash it here. This is a really important story that's been on my mind a lot. I'm gonna gift it to your podcast. In the 90s, we had Scott drop-ins and rakes came out and spinaches, all these clip-ons. Sometimes they were built in the bars, the Le Mans bars, right? That curved in. If people aren't familiar with them, they can go Google them. But basically like imagine your handlebars did a 90 degree turn inward at the end of the drops. So you could put your hands in the middle, but also the Scott rakes came out after that. And they were basically like a second set of drops that clipped onto your handlebars on either side of your stem. So you want to talk about like narrow bars. Let's talk about 
10 centimeter wide drops on either side of your stem. And we all had them. Even I had them because that was the trend. And if someone had them, you had them. And then spinaches were clip-ons that let you ride in the puppy paws position. Basically, they were extensions in the middle and they let you put your hands in the middle like you had aero bars. Jonas Carney, when he was on Coors Light at the time and was definitely the best sprinter in the country at the time that I was trying to also make it. He was probably the guy that I admired or you know, wished I could be as fast as from when I was a junior. He's just a, a couple of years ahead of me and really was the kind of rider I wanted to be. He noticeably did not have any Scott Rakes on his on his bike at a time where literally everybody had them. And I was like, why don't you use these? What are you doing? And he said, I'm a sprinter. My job is to sprint. If there's any point in the race before the sprint where I'm in a situation where I need to be in Scott Rakes, then I am not doing my job correctly. I have screwed up. So they're heavy and there's never a moment in my bike race where I should need something like that in order to do my job. I literally went back to the car and took them off my bike. I am not easily influenced and I wasn't easily influenced then. What he said was so clear-eyed, it made such perfect sense. It, it impacted me that I think about it to this day. So I had the same advice for these aerodynamicists you're not racing European classics that always finish in small groups where the races shatter, where you spend a lot of time in the breakaway or alone or going cross to the groups. You are most of the time, especially if you're in a lower category, racing criteriums that end in field sprints. And you need to learn how to ride your bike before you try and fold yourself in half and disappear from the wind. These folks are actually making the races more dangerous. They can go fast. They're good at pedaling. That's all they're good at. They're not good at turning. They're not good at sprinting. They're not good at accelerating. They're not good at reading races. They don't understand tactics. They've got, they've, they are sort of praying to this single God here and it's aerodynamics. I think this is not great for safety. They all, they are all emulating something that they're seeing on TV. And I think it's something that only works for a certain type of rider and a certain type of race with a certain skill set. Most of the riders doing it should straighten their hoods out and learn how to drive their bikes, learn how to pedal less. So that brings to the, the kind of the concluding question into, you know, because we've gotten, <laughs> we've gotten a lot here. And I think some people's brains might be exploding with the amount of information because I know mine is. So let's make it simple. I'll start with you, Adam. What, because we can't solve the problem, but we can take the first step. What would you say to the typical, and I hate using that word, and I'm using the air quotes, the typical cat one, cat one, two, in these races that they should learn or that they should open themselves up to the possibility of learning that would make our racing safer and ultimately better? I mean, they should pay me to coach them, I guess, but uh, I don't really have a good answer for that because frankly, I feel like I just sound like every generation complains about the one that comes after it. And I'm well aware that that's what I sound like right now. You know, when I was coming up, I don't know what they... I'm sure there was something they complained about us coming up that 
I was probably dive bombing people in turns or I sprinted for premiums that I wasn't supposed to sprint for because I didn't know I wasn't supposed to sprint because I was supposed to let the person pulling win the preem or do you know what I mean? Like, uh, so I don't want to sound like grouchy or that I just don't understand the kids these days, though I don't. Um, so the advice, I, I don't know how to fix it, but the advice I would give them is to learn the craft of bike racing. Bike racing is a craft. Bike racing, I mean, we uh, comparing bike racing to chess is a cliche, but I but I do think um, if you put two people on treadmills across from each other and a chessboard in the middle uh, and turn the treadmills up, how many moves ahead can you think when you're under that kind of pressure? I think my talent and my experience means I can think twenty moves ahead like a like a chess grandmaster uh and the kids i think the guy <laughs> the kids these days new riders younger riders less experienced riders because of the pandemic because there's less racing um because there aren't teams because there aren't mentors because they're figuring out on their own uh and i think they're paying attention to the wrong things they really are not capable of thinking more than a couple of moves ahead. And this is essentially what we're talking about when they're making bad decisions, literally in every corner. They can't think ahead through the next turn. They don't know where they want to enter and exit the turn coming up in the best way possible. So I don't think they're reading the race as well. I don't think they're making good decisions about how they're setting their bikes up. I don't think they're prioritizing the right things. So I would tell them, Keep getting stronger, keep doing the training, keep studying the science, you know, like that's all important. You have to do all that. Do not neglect agility and the craft of bike racing. Figure out how to get stronger. And then when you're in the bike race, figure out how to pedal as little as possible. Then when it's time to put the boot in, to win the bike race, to go across, to make the attack, that's when you need to pour all of the pedaling into those moments. But you have to learn how to identify them and save your matches for those movements. I don't think the, the kids coming up right now, I don't see them learning that. Whereas I learned that first. I learned that before I learned how to train. I learned the art and craft of bike racing because we didn't know anything about training. So we learned the craft first. Crap thing is that you just explained what I learned at Plainfield a hell of a lot better than I did. So thank you. There. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. Peter, you get the last, the last word. What's the thing that you would advise people to be ready to do in order to make riding better and safer? Don't succumb to the trap of silent sport. Don't, don't do it yourself. Get plugged in with people. Find a group, find a club, find a team. Don't be a privateer. Don't succumb to this silent sport trap where you're alone to determine, oh man, I would get so much faster if I went and spent $1,200 on these wheels because someone who's mentoring you or someone who you could perceive as a positive influence on your development would say, no, how about you just like train smarter or get a coach or, you know, there's a lot of things that you need the compass of a mentor and you need to expose yourself to people. I want to touch on one last thing is super, super important. But Adam mentioned that like riding inside versus outside that years back before direct drive, he was outside once. And I remember I had coffee with one of my first mentors, Charlie Townsend, and we sat down. It was a snowstorm, October snowstorm. 
here in Minnesota and I said, Hey, what's it going to, what, what am I missing? What are my blind spots? And he's like, you need to become a better bike handler. And I was like, no, that what I ride my bike all the time. What are you talking about? He's like, no, trust me. Like when we go on group rides together, I can't even put my hand on your back when I'm riding side by side with you without you like freaking out, figure out how to solve that. Ride your bike outside as much as you can in every condition do cyclocross and just figure it out. What did I do? I ordered a fat bike and I commuted all winter long everywhere I went and it made drastic improvements on the next season. So riding outside and just exposing yourself subconsciously will develop your skill sets. Riding through ice, like this is Minnesota, like riding to work on icy roads with no studs, that will get you pretty comfortable at and at one with the bike. And I still had ways to go as we discovered in 2015, but hey, the growth from like Downer Ave, take Downer Ave as an example. Corner two, how many people will not move up or race that corner because they check out 150 meters before we even get to that corner at Downer? No, you got to know, you got to be able to slide up and take everybody and their grandmother to the store in that corner. And I don't know where that analogy came from, but there you have it. I like it. Thank you guys so much. This has been great. And uh, can't wait to get out there with you guys again sometime soon. Awesome. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, thanks, bud. Thank you so much for joining us on another episode of the show. We are a proud part of the Wide Angle Podium Network of Shows. WideAnglePodium.com, your source for everything related to the independent world of cycling media. We are heading to Intelligentsia this week and going to do 10 days of racing. It's the great crit beef between Rob Kelly and Frank Cundiff. So place your bets on who's going to beat who more often over 10 days of racing. That's going to slow down our ability to churn out shows. But the next show up will be Chapter 3 of the Project Echelon Files with Brandon Fury, Ricky Arnopel, and Ethan Crane. Join us here again next time for more stories from your Criterium Nation. <laughs>